If life seems boring and you can't get enough, well, now you've come to classical stuff. This is wonderful. That's all I got. Uh, although I was trying. Couplet. Thank you. I was trying to put it together in what I think is going to be today's topic. But hi, welcome to Classical Stuff. You should know my name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined uh, with my two good friends and fellow intellect. Are we intellectuals? No. We like to think of ourselves. We're as not intellectuals. intellectuals. We are. I'm judging my last episode, it's good to just not be. That's right. That's we are. We right. are common plowmen of the world. Um, like I, I uh, we that. are. Growing potatoes. I don't know. Um, Thomas like, Fletcher Magby. Uh, hello. And AJ Hannenberg. That's me. But like intellectual potatoes. Is this this is a metaphor, right? Yeah, we're oh, we're good. just we're farmers farmers of the old world. We're just ah. like we're going and we're just pulling grub. We're pulling tubers <laughs> out of the ground. Not grubs. Sounds like <laughs> an awfully intellectual way to describe <laughs> to describe farming. Yeah. Like this is an extended metaphor. Yeah, it is. Um, speaking about extended metaphors, today we're going to be talking about poetry. <laughs> okay. This I, I tried to start it off transition. poetically. I'm no, sorry. No, I appreciate it. It was really good. I really liked your intro. I pre- appreciate it. Thank you. What would you guys say is my, this is going to be dangerous, is my current view of poetry? You hate it. Current view of poetry? Yeah. How do I, how do I AJ Hannenberg, feel about poetry? Mm. There's poetry that you like that is more of a down-to-earth, not, you know, there's there's poetry that's too obtuse and you are frustrated by that, but there are beautiful ways to describe things that, are understandable by people, you would appreciate that. Okay. Your current view of poetry, that poetry is a current that has po- that has driven you along. You've floated down the streams of poetry. Um, I don't know. Um, that poetry has the potential to be able to communicate uh, complex ideas, but also emotions in small little packages that you appreciate? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I'm still working out. <laughs> so there's, no, there's no answer anyway. Well, I mean, you guys are you guys are both kind of right. Okay. There, there is poetry so that frustrates me because of its <laughs> obtuseness. Are we playing points. quiz game? Do I need to start keeping track? No, well, no, please. Okay. Yeah, I'm still kind of working it out. There are things, and I and I think in prep, preparing for this episode, I have defined a few things because I do have strong feelings about poetry, both good and bad, and it's not just a disregard of the whole genre. Although I have at times in my literary career thought poetry was a bit of a silly genre, partially because of some readings I did of statesmen who said, thank heavens I didn't get into poetry because what a waste of time that would have been. Marcus Aurelius, in fact, in his introduction to his sayings says, thanks to this particular guy who steered me away from poetry because Mm. it it would have wasted my life. So because of influences like that, I've had a... But Marcus Aurelius was like, not... You wouldn't invite him to a dinner party. Really? No, he was like... uh, He's full of good quips. He's got quips. Was he? He was all like... I don't know, suffer. <laughs> and don't complain about it. Yeah, it sounds like the right kind of guy. Yeah, I can, I can feed him anything. anything yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I can give him those tubers I'm apparently pulling out of the ground, the grubs. Yeah, good. Anyway. Gross. So I have, I have a healthy suspicion of poetry as a genre for a few reasons that I've voiced. One of them is ease of entry encourages a profusion of bad poetry. Anybody can write it, and because anyone can write it, there's a lot of garbage out there. Sure. You guys know this. Good old you, Instagram. You poetry. have read, yeah, Instagram poetry. There's also no, it's the, all poetry. I think is the name of it. That 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 again. This was 15 years ago, but that's where we would post all of, like in middle school, um, 20 years ago. How old am I? Anyway, yes, the, there are places you can go online to find bad 
teenage poetry, right? I posted on poetrycritical.com. There it is. That's where I was. Yeah. And there are, there are other places now. I'm sure you can find them. And I think the biggest one now is Instagram, where people can post all of their poetry. And we're actually going to talk about today what good, poetry? good and bo- oh. bad poetry are. That's, that's a part of this. So this is AJ's guide to poetry oh in gosh. four parts. Dope. What? You guys excited? <laughs> really Super rolls excited. off the tongue. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So I, I can give you an overview. So number one, we're going to talk about how to analyze poetry, not necessarily evaluate it, but how do you how do you get into a poem? Part two, we are going to be introduced to John Donne, a poet of the late 15, early 1600s. Part three, I gotta scroll down. Part three is how to evaluate poetry. How do we tell if poetry is good or bad? There's a lot of voices out there about this. And J. So, Alfred Pritchard? <laughs> good old J. Alfred. We're gonna talk about that. Good. Yeah. And then we're going to talk about four, what is the overall value of poetry? Where I have landed on whether or not poetry is of value to us as literary people. Is this and a 17-part series? This is these, epic. Are, these are giant topics. They are huge topics. Yeah, and I, I don't know, you guys might just get bored right off the bat and not want to talk to me. That's fine. We might get through all, all four parts today. It might take a little bit longer. I've, I, I may have over-prepared for an hour, boys, which is go. what might be happening. Okay. So this might this be a is more great. than Usually one part. Usually you come in and you're like, I don't know if this is going to take an hour. Graham, you say that literally every time. AJ says that literally you every say time. It every you, time. Well, you also say it every uh, time. My episode came at 48 minutes last week. So you were correct <laughs> that it didn't go an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mine usually do because apparently we like to talk and That's you guys true. help me out. Okay, part number one, evaluating poetry. How do you analyze poetry? What's the system you guys use? How do you do it? Do you guys have one? No. I don't, I know we, at school we use Sopsis. I don't love Sopsis, but we use Sopsis. All right. So what he's referring to is a method I learned in college and we still teach our high schoolers. Sopsis. S-O-A-P-S-I-S. Do you remember what those letters oh, stand for? Gosh. Uh, Are you Googling right now, Thomas? I'm 100%. watching you. Yeah. Speaker, speaker occasion. occasion. Uh, let's see. A, a. Audience. Audience. Purpose. Purpose. Style. Stuff. St- just, just read it out, Mr. Google. You got two more. What are they? Um, Imagery. <laughs> Say the next one. What's the last S? Sound. Sound. Okay. Sound. It is sound. Zero points for Graham. Yeah. Five points. What? Wow. I love this game. Okay. Senior Google. So we, we teach this to our students and... L- I'm paying attention to AJ. <laughs> and do you love it? Sopsis? Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a method. Can I? Sorry. It helps. We, your first question was, "How do you analyze poetry? What do you like? What does that question mean? Like, this is how do you do you have a system for how to fully understand everything that's happening in a poem? No, like I read it. Like I don't. Again, I'm not. I don't teach this stuff, so I like. I almost don't understand the question. Like, yeah. Why? You, why, why is analyzing the first like when you when you approach a poem? Shouldn't you just like read it and be like, well, that's interesting? Or that I'm going to no say to me, I'm actually going to say no. Okay, uh, th- it shouldn't. I think we are, this is going to come up later, but I think we are obligated to do the work of the poem if it's a good poem. If it's a good one, right. And if it's not already readily understandable, which some are. I'm going to read both, both types today or, you know, in my series or whatever it is Uh in, as we go through, but some poems do require a lot of extra thought and digging to get at it. There's one example. Especially John Donne. (laughs) Especially John Donne. He is... He is not easy to yeah. grok, depending. Some of his poems sure. are a lot more simple. And just right? so I he understand, wrote a ton. And you also do the sopsis for all of your Instagram poetry that you read? Is <laughs> Obviously. That, okay, so yeah, I, sure. I go through the whole process Thank and you. understand them all. Thanks. Here, yeah, some poetry is easy to understand. 
after one reading. Uh-huh. And some of my favorite poets are this way. Billy Collins, who is the right. poet laureate of the U.S. Most of his poems are really easy to grasp quickly, yep. right? He's not complicated. Yep. Uh, Donald Hall is another one like this. They're both modern, modern poets. I think both were poet, poet laureate of the U.S. Donald Hall lost his wife, Jane Kenyon, who was a poet in her own right, to cancer. And his poetry collection during, that, during and after that period called Without is one of the most arresting collections of poetry I've ever read. You have to read it in series all at once. I did and ended up stopping in the middle of my drive home to finish the poems. I had started reading them at work on a slow day, and then I finished reading them in my car and then cried for half an hour and mm. then drive, drove home. They are that good. Yeah. And they are easy to understand. They're not complicated. So, But there are some poems that do demand our work. And so how do you get into them? Well, that's one method, Sopsis. You talk about the speaker, the occasion, when when was the poem written, who it's to, what is the point of the poem or the purpose, the style, which is a huge umbrella. There's a lot of things going on in style. And then imagery, which seems to me to fit under style, and then sound, which also seems to fit under style. It's not a perfect system. So in the one I looked up, it says that the analysis is it's soaps and then in parentheses is the IS. So it's almost like it's a subset of. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And. In a book I'm going to reference a couple times during during this this thing that I'm doing is Perrin's Guide to Literature, Structure, Sound, and Sense. They have a understanding and evaluating poetry box, which is just a series of 21 questions you can walk yourself through to understand a poem. Number one, who's the speaker? What kind of person are they? Number two, is there an identifiable audience? What can we know about them? Number three, what's the occasion? Four, the setting. Five, the place. What's the central purpose of this poem, which comes rather early, I think? Seven, state the central idea. Eight is two parts. A, outline the poem, and B, summarize the events. Nine, paraphrase the poem. So there are, as you can see, a variety of ways to get into a poem. I actually Googled how to analyze poetry, and I got, I think, a wiki how. I got Uh. one from Cliff Notes. I got the Sopsis method. I had one from Masterclass that was five, five things you can do to analyze a poem I think one of the... Did Billy know, Collins, was that Billy Collins' masterclass? Yeah, it yeah. was, which seems cool. I kind of want to take That's it. That's like the one masterclass I'd be willing to shell 90 bucks out for. I actually bought Dead Mouse's masterclass. Oh, was it good? Worth it? Worth it? Kind of. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was kind of encouraging because I was like, okay, he's not doing... There's no deep secret. Mm-hmm. Just kind of do it. Cool. Anyway, I, I think that if you have a basic grasp of literary devices, which means understanding, you know, the rhythm of a poem, what an iambic foot is, what a poetic foot is, like the rhythm, how to do stresses and non-stresses, metaphor, diction, assonance, consonance. If you know basic literary terms, it's kind of easy to get into a poem. I think it's often much more helpful to read a poem and then start asking why. Why is it in this form? Why does he use unstressed, unstressed, stress? So, right. ba-da-da. Maybe it's the repetition of that might sound like a horse mm-hmm. if it's a battle poem. Ba-da-da, 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 right? Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. Yes, exactly. So maybe to sound like a horse. Why Why is there one word on a certain line? Why, If you just begin mm-hmm. to start asking why or ask, what exactly does this mean? I don't understand why this word is here. If a, poem, if a poet has done his job, then everything will be done for a reason. Right. And asking why a thing is the way it is will start letting you worm your way into the core of the apple, right? Maybe yeah. walking yourself through soapsis is fine, but man, I find that an awful sterile way to get into a poem. I think that was my point from before. In the same way that, like, if you're going to give me a list of 21 questions and say, read this poem and then answer these 21 questions, I'm never going to read a poem. Right? You're talking about math man? 
yeah, but that doesn't mean I want to like proofs are beautiful, but that in matrix algebra I'm learning is also beautiful, but, um, that's not like at the point that you're writing more words about the poem than the poem is itself. I don't know. Haven't you gone too far? I don't know. Aha. Okay. I have a poem about that by Billy Cullen. Wow. It's like, it's like movie review videos that are longer than the actual film. Yes, totally exactly. Yeah. Okay, so this is Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins, who I've already mentioned. Do you know this poem, Graham? Uh, is this about tying a poem to a chair? Yes, it is. Okay, <laughs> so I'm going to read it. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light, like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. And so I think those are the two approaches to a poem. One, I could fully analyze and man, just beat the thing to absolute death, or I could sort of worm my way into a poem and live with it ask it questions and try to fully understand what it's getting at. And then once I do, I can sort of let it have its effect on me. And I, I can think, you can think about this in, in the ways that we think of reason, right? We have intellectus and we have, what's the other one? Ratio. 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 So ratio is the work. It's the work of thinking. And that's one method, right? I can, man, I can just tear it absolute to pieces. Intellectus which is the contemplation of a thing under full understanding and let it have its work on you is really only possible after the ratio. After I understand the poem, can I really let it work on me? But that's the higher, right? Mm -hmm. That's the higher thing is to let the poem have its work on me after fully understanding it, not to tie it to a chair and beat it with a hose and figure out what it means. So that is how I like to analyze poetry is read the poem and just begin asking why. Why did they choose this form? Why are they doing the things they are doing? And we can mention all of those literary terms. We can talk about metaphor. We can talk about simile. We can talk about vowel choice and rhyme and half rhyme and and scheme and form and all that stuff. Yeah. Everything should be there for a reason. This is probably why also it is a good thing to have memorized poems. Yes. Because then they can bounce around in your brain and they can come up in moments when you wouldn't expect them to, but they help interpret the moment or they they sort of come up in in uh yeah yeah i was gonna uh, even before this question of analysis i'm wondering that again when you are teaching poems you're picking the few that are the best to present to a student i I almost wonder if the first step is memory so that then it's you've had to spend time with it before you then cut it apart Mm -hmm. the way you're talking about Mm -hmm. like when i was in grade school we had to memorize um nothing gold can stay i don't remember who 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 wrote it i think it was uh, frost Nature's first green is gold, its hue is hard to hold, something, something, something. But the phrase is nothing gold can stay, meaning that like... Robert Frost. Eventually things kind of like, you know, spring turns into fall eventually. Nothing gold can stay. And that's been a little phrase that I always use kind of like funny or sarcastically when something happens. Like, oh, you drop a... You drop a glass on the ground, it shatters, like, oh, nothing gold can stay or whatever. There's just something about like a line of poetry that sort of stays in your mind or stays in your lexicon or whatever of, of existence that, that helps sort of orient. Um, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it, I think that's an example of it being with you as opposed to you torturing a confession out of it. Yeah. 
there's there's a poem by Jack Gilbert. I don't remember the poem. I don't remember the title of it. I do remember one line, and I'm, I know I'm even butchering the line, but the, the notion was something like newness strutting around as if it were something, <laughs> right? Just because it is new does not mean it's good, and new likes to walk around like it's got everything going for it, but it doesn't mean anything. That one always comes back to me. Newness struts around as if it were something. <laughs> yeah, a line that's, that sticks with me. Right. So there you go. There's an example of a student living with a poem. Can I read it? Newness strutting around as if it were significant. There you go. It's a good line. Yeah. Man, I just I think about that all the time. Measuring the Tiger, I think, is the name of the poem. There you go. Jack Gilbert. Another good one, by the way. His poems go through generally about 300 revisions before they're done. Mm. He's a hard worker. But so and Jack Gilbert has there's like a collected poems of Jack Gilbert. And I want to say it's like 400 pages. And that's that was my point from before of like probably the worst way to learn the poems of Jack Gilbert is to read 400 of them in a row, right? Like there's something to AJ being the guide to say, this is the one to start with, Mm -hmm. memorize that and then get used to it. Yeah. That said, I think that my students often get hung up on the first impression of a poem. I ask them to read it and like mice, they get dropped in, but the mice, the mouse takes one loop around the center of the room, doesn't Mm -hmm. even touch the walls and says, I got it. Mm -hmm. I figured it all out. And I think that's dangerous too. I can't tell you how many times a student has read a poem and then said, this is depressing when it is nothing of the sort, or it's, it's kind of an uplifting poem. And I'm like, actually, it's about the end of the world. And they, you know, they don't, they don't, they haven't done the work of really understanding even the literal meaning, the denotation of the words. What is the poet saying? And I think that we are obligated for a really good poem to do the work, to figure out what he's trying to say. That was part one. Are you guys satisfied? Yeah. Part one, how to analyze poetry. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. 17 minutes. So we might actually make it through all four. Uh, Unlikely. Unlikely. Part two, introduction to John Donne, who is quickly (laughs) becoming one of my favorite poets. So John Donne, let me tell you about the guy. He was born in 1571 or 1572. We're not quite sure. He's born to a Catholic family that didn't attend Anglican services when doing that was illegal, oh. right? You were not allowed to be Catholic in England at this time. It was almost treasonous. Right. He was the third of six kids. His dad, also named John Dunn, <laughs> was warden of the Ironmongers Company in London. His dad died in 76 when he was either four, you know, four or five. She, his mom was well-connected and now had responsibility for the kids. And she was the great niece of Thomas More, who we talked about, right? Thomas like More? The Thomas More? I think it was the oh, Thomas okay, More. Cool. I think. How's his last name spelled? M-O-O-R-E. Oh, this one's spelled M-O-R-E. Maybe sure? different Thomas More. Maybe I'm thinking of... Uh... Thomas, no, it's, it's with one O. Oh, it's one O. Yeah. Thomas More. Yeah. There, here you go. Yeah, great. So, hey, callback. A few months, a widow, she then married Dr. John Simonges, a wealthy widower. I'm sorry, one more time. Simings? Yeah, Simings? Okay, cool. Simonges? Yeah. A, I might have just mistyped it. I was doing this rather quickly. A wealthy widower with his own kids. So Dunn was privately educated. At 11, he started being he started his studies at Hertford College, Oxford. After three years, he was admitted to Cambridge, where he studied for another three years. He wasn't allowed to get a degree, though, because he was Catholic, and he wouldn't Bummer. take the oath of supremacy, which is basically saying, the king is in charge of the church, and he wouldn't do it, and so he was not allowed to get that degree. He would later totally flip the script on this oh, and become 100% Anglican and say that all Catholics should take this oath. Oh. So that wasn't long lived. Right. In 1791, or sorry, 1591, he was admitted to Thavies Inn Legal School. And in 92, he was admitted to Lincoln's Inn, which is one of the inns of court. This means it's like a professional association for lawyers or barristers. So he became a lawyer for a while. He 
during this period lost his brother, who had been arrested for harboring a Catholic priest and was also arrested for not attending... Like just having him in the house? Yeah, attending Catholic service. You weren't supposed to be Catholic. So he got jailed, and in jail, he he got bubonic plague and died. It was during this time that he actually began to question his Catholicism. So during and after his education, he traveled a ton, including to Italy and Spain, where he learned the languages. He spent lots of money on women and on books and just pastimes he he kind of john dunn's a sexy dude like there's uh no he is there's... no he totally is there's a poem i'm i'm debating whether or not i should read if we have extra time i'll read it the flea oh it's so good <laughs> it's a it's a sexy poem it it's, is it's a definitely so we will have poem. to put some you know like yeah we'll warnings on this we'll do a yeah we'll do a warning when i when i get to it he at 25 he was appointed the chief secretary to sir thomas egerton the lord keeper of the great seal which oh, is a great name a cool great title, title. Yeah. why don't we have stuff like that anymore we might i don't know we have like secretary general yeah secretary okay. general is not nearly like cool defense as defense secretary general of the lord of arms or something yeah. why don't why don't we make more of an effort that's all i'm saying we like a giant mace yeah yes. yeah, be yeah cool anyway he fell in love with egerton's niece and more and they secretly married in 1601 against the wishes of Egerton and oh, George Moore. Her who, name was Anne Moore, or he fell in love with his niece and more girls. Well, her name Anne, was yes. Anne Moore. Anne, Anne Moore. Yes. Moore. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Not and Moore. Yes. Well, <laughs> against the wishes of Egerton and George Moore, who at that time was lieutenant of the tower and Anne's dad. Oh. They married in secret. Yeah, but this they did. did not go over yeah, well. Yeah, not. No. The wedding ruined his career and got him imprisoned mm. with the priest who married them oh, and wow. the guy who was witness at the wedding. Wow. So he just watched a wedding and got chucked in jail for it. They were re- released shortly, though, because it turned out the wedding was valid. And so he got released and then got the other two released. And in 1609, several years later, he finally was reconciled with his father-in-law and got his wife's dowry. Um, they moved a few times. He worked as a Man, lawyer. Man, that's an awkward Thanksgiving, though. Can you oh, imagine? so yeah, awkward. And it, I mean... Yeah, didn't didn't go over well. Lost his job. At this point, he's trying to work as a lawyer and do some printing of pamphlets. I think at this point against Catholicism, and they didn't have much money. But his wife just started popping out kids, Hmm. just like crazy. Over, I think it was something like sixteen years. She had twelve children. So you can take a man out of Catholicism, but you can't. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a lot of kids. Uh, Two stillbirths. Many of them didn't pass the age of ten which is kind of a bummer. And he was always riddled with money problems. He could not pay for all his kids. And at one point, one of his children died. And at this point, he was so far in despair, he had been considering suicide. He said, that's one less mouth to feed, but I can't even pay for funeral expenses. He was in some trouble. He would actually write later a defense of suicide, which he didn't publish during his lifetime. But I began reading, and it's really interesting. Hmm. Right at that time, suicide was considered to be an absolutely unforgivable sin, and he said, "You know what? I'm not sure that's true. I thought about it myself." Hmm. Okay, John Donz, yeah, he's an interesting dude. Seriously, he's, uh, I mean, he's yeah. like someone who is so profoundly Christian and so profoundly like not. not. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, or so he's so profoundly Christian and so, and so profoundly like earthy and swarthy and doubtful. He is. He he didn't think he was... Well, we'll get there. Yeah. We're almost to the end of his little thing. Anyway, his wife died five days after giving a stillbirth to their 12th child. Mm. And this is the poem he wrote when she died. Since she whom I have loved hath paid her last debt to nature, and to hers, and my good is dead, and her soul early into heaven ravished, 
holy on heavenly things, my mind is set. Here admiring her, my mind did wet to seek thee, God, so streams do show the head. But though I have found thee, and thou my thirst has fed, a holy thirsty dropsy melts me yet. So he is, he is the picture of the abdicating knight from yeah, your yeah. last he episode. Is, man, his rhyming is so good. Where he's he's like, my wife is dead, but man, she made me seek you. But oh, it's kind of a bummer because yeah. I still miss her. Right. But why should I beg more love when as thou dost woo my soul for hers offering all thine? And dost not only fear lest I allow my love to saints and angels, things divine, but in thy tender jealousy dost doubt lest the world, flesh, yea, devil put thee out. That's a heavy poem to write when your wife poem. dies. In 1602, he was elected member of the parliament, uh, which was not a paid position, and found a wealthy patron, the MP Sir Robert Drury, who gave his family a fancy apartment in a large house in Drury Lane. He wrote some anti-Catholic polemics in 1610 and 11. Okay. Eventually, King James was pleased with Dunn's work and refused to reinstate him at court, but urged him to take holy orders. Oh. At length, Dunn said okay, and in 1615 was ordained a priest of the Church of England. The following of the rest of his history is basically the story of a clergyman. He eventually became Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, which was a well-paid position. We have 160 of his sermons still. Some of them were delivered to kings. And he was, he turned basically from poetry into more prose work. He, he oh. wrote a lot of, he wrote some things for his congregation. He wrote a lot of sermons. He wrote a lot of things and didn't do as much poetry in his life as a clergyman, but served faithfully for many, many years as a clergyman. And he wrote poetry even then. He wrote a ton. For this episode, I bought his complete works for a dollar on Kindle. <laughs> and it's, I think, over 900 pages long. It's Great. a long, long book. He died March 31st in Old St. Paul's Cathedral, and there's a nice memorial statue with an epigraph he probably wrote himself, and it's in St. Paul's Cathedral now. He started the Metaphysical School of Poetry, which was named after him, and there are a few qualities of this school of poetry. They're free from former styles. Super dense. <laughs> they, they have European Baroque influences and include elaborate conceits. Right. So yep. a, a long extended metaphor that eventually gets wrapped up in something metaphysical, often beginning with nature and ending in the spiritual. And this was actually one of the biggest criticisms of the romantic poets is they said, you're doing you're taking nature and you're making it more than nature. We just like nature. Mm. Right. Makes sense. Wordplay and wit and the influence of Plato were all oh. elements of their thing. OK. OK. So I'm going to read a few of his poems. And this is where we actually get to do start doing the asking why, right? Sure. And kind of dive in. I'm going to read one that's pretty simple, which is death be not proud. You guys can both pull it up if you want. Graham, it's familiar to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether I should read The Flea or not as an example of his sexy poetry. Maybe in the in-between episode. Yeah, well, we'll that's keep that for idea. an in-between episode. Yeah. And I'll read The Flea. And if you are on our Patreon, you can go and listen to it. And if you're not on our Patreon, well, you can go read it yourself and then read some of the criticisms. It's, it is a... Uh, or you can go to our Patreon. More earthy. Or you can go to our Patreon. You know, whatever you want to do. And then we're going to read another poem that is fast becoming one of my favorite poems, and I want to commit it to memory. So this is the first one, which is Death Be Not Proud, which is one of... All three of those are pretty famous for him. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. 
For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swellest thy then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Okay, Thomas, this one is kind of new for you. I've read this before. Oh, have you? Yeah, okay, of yeah. never mind. So, what? Uh, anything pop out there? Is there anything that you need to ask why for this poem? What do you mean? What do you mean by why? Well, I mean, is, is there anything that you don't fully understand? Any words where you're like, I don't know why this is there. I don't know why he's he's doing such a thing. Any little rhyming bits you don't get? I mean, thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. I understand the desperate men. I don't know how death is a slave to fate, chance, kings. I don't know. I don't well, know. sometimes you accidentally walk into a wood chipper. <laughs> fate says this is when people shall die. So mm. death has to go where fate says. Gotcha. Okay. This isn't exactly what you're getting at, but he's talking to death. He's telling death to not be proud. Yeah. So it's... um. I don't, again, from your soapsis from before, who is he talking to or how does he personify who he's talking to? Um, again, like I don't think of death as being a haughty or proud thing. Um, I don't know. This makes me wonder at what point in his life he's talking for how death impacted him, right? Mm. I don't know if this is after, before he's married and has children or if this is after he's encountered death over and over, right? Yeah. So that, that would be a question I would have of kind of where this comes in his life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's a fairly straightforward poem. Death, you're not as good as you think you are. Right. Right. We're going to live eternally and rest and sleep are pictures of death and they're pretty great. So from you must be pretty good, I guess. And you are a slave to all these people and you have to dwell with all kinds of dumb stuff and eventually you're going to die. So it's, it's a straightforward poem that is easily understandable. It doesn't take a whole bunch of extra analysis, I don't think. No. But it is right. something that can you can sort of do the whole intellectus thing with. This is something good to ponder on. The death isn't all it's cracked up to be, right? Yeah. I think that's a good one. Okay, now we're going to move to something that requires a little bit more focus and background. And one of the reasons I read this, and it should be of interest even to our non-Christian listeners, is that to understand this, you have to have a pretty decent background in medieval worldview because he makes some comparisons to some worldview we just don't have anymore and is really easy to understand from the modern viewpoint. This one is called Good Friday, 1613, Riding Westward. Okay, I'll read it once real slow. Yeah, buckle up. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to read it once slow, and then we're going to go through it piece by piece, and I'll kind of explain those bits that aren't easily understandable, and then hopefully that will bring it all to a satisfying conclusion when we get to the last lines. Okay, Good Friday, 1613, Riding Westward. Let man's soul be a sphere. And then in this, the intelligence that moves, devotion is. And as the other spheres, by being grown subject to foreign motions, lose their own, and being by others hurried every day, scarce in a year their natural form, obey. Pleasure or business, so, our souls admit, for their first mover, 
and our world by it. Hence is it that I am carried towards the west this day when my soul's form bends toward the east. There I should see a sun by rising set, and by that setting endless day beget. But that Christ on this cross did rise and fall, sin had eternally benighted all. Yet dare I almost be glad I do not see that spectacle of too much weight for me. Who sees God's face, that is, self-life, must die. What a death were it then to see God die. It made his own lieutenant, nature, shrink. It made his footstool crack and the sun wink. How could I behold those hands which span the poles, and tune all spheres at once pierced with those holes? Could I behold that endless height which is zenith to us, and to our antipodes, humbled below us? Or that blood which is the seed of all our souls, if not his, make dirt of dust? Or that flesh which was worn by God for his apparel ragged and torn? On these things I durst not look. Durst I upon his miserable mother cast mine eye. Hold on. Who was God's... Sorry. I've got a whole bunch of papers here. Who was God's partner here? And furnished thus half of that sacrifice which ransomed us. Though these things, as I, ri- as I ride, be from mine eye, they are present yet unto my memory. For that looks towards them, and thou lookest towards me. O Savior, as thou hangest upon the tree. I turn my back to thee, but to receive corrections, till thy mercies bid thee leave. O think me worth thine anger. Punish me. Burn off my rusts and my deformity. Restore thine image so much by thy grace that thou mayest know me, and I'll turn my face. Okay. This is quickly becoming one of my favorite poems. We're going to go through it little bit by little bit. And this is one where you're kind of obligated to ask why in a few spots, because he's it is a complicated conceit that ends in sort of a, the big reveal at the end. It's like two or three conceits, yeah. Yeah, he's doing a lot here. Okay, so this first little bit, let man's soul be a sphere. Right here, he's not comparing it to a beach ball. This is where my, my kids first get lost, is they think he's, all right, so your soul's a ball. Well, not really. Back then, remember, they believed that the planets were set in giant crystalline spheres that whirled about the Earth because it was a, the geocentric model. So what he's doing is saying, let your soul be one of these giant crystalline balls that whirl around the Earth and that this, the planets are set into. And the intelligence, he references in the second line, so let man's soul be a sphere, and then in this, the intelligence that moves devotion is... So for each sphere, there was an intelligence or some sort of spirit that basically ran the sphere, was in charge of its movement every day. It's like riding the motorcycle that powered the engine. Exactly. It's, it's riding the pedals and the whole the whole big sphere turns because of this intelligence that's running it. <laughs> and the way that medieval man understood that to work is that it was moved by devotion for God, Right. So, let man's soul be a sphere, and, in, and then in this, the intelligence that moves, devotion is. So, the thing that moves your soul is devotion. Like That's, a soul cycle class. Yeah, like yes. a soul cycle, right? <laughs> Quite literally. Your, yes. your devotion is the thing that makes your soul go round, <laughs> yes. right? That's, what, that's so, where we are so far. Oh, my word. And as the other spheres, by being grown subject to foreign motions, lose their own... So that was another thing, is that they thought that the... I think it was the outer sphere, its own movement 
conveyed its movement to the smaller spheres, mm-hmm. right? Kind of like rubbed off on them, okay. right? And so the outer sphere was kind of the one in charge and everything else had maybe a natural motion, but got kind of put a little bit off course by a sphere that wasn't itself. So he's saying, if our soul is a sphere and it is run by devotion, but sometimes is waylaid or pointed in a different direction because of other things around us and it loses its rightful devotion, uh, that's what's going on. So being and being by others hurried every day, scarce in a year, their natural form obey. So because of all the stuff going around us, very rarely does our soul ever be devoted what it's supposed to be devoted to, right? We're getting pushed off course by all kinds of things around us. Yep. And then he lists some of those. Pleasure or business. So our souls admit for their first mover. Okay, first mover. That's a weird phrase. You guys know what that is. What What is the first mover? I mean, God, like the 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 before this is aristotle right that mm-hmm. you all thing if, if if motion exists that motion is caused by something so you go back to this first thing what is it one phrase is first mover and then aristotle will call this god um yeah it's, it's kind of thing that's like outside of nature but is the origin of everything i guess yeah so it's one of the it is now also an argument for the existence of god is what some of the philosophers did it's called the first mover or the first cause right if what we see around us is the is a a series of cause and effect well if you trace that all the way back there has to be an uncaused cause Mm -hmm. something that is the first cause of all things right we even have that in the worldview that admits the big bang the big bang being the very first cause the Mm -hmm. thing that sets us going right so he's saying that we take pleasure or business as our first mover by mistake. Exactly. It is the thing that sets our life going, yeah. right? It becomes the effective first cause of what our soul is doing rather than something else, right? Yeah. So our soul is not obeying its, nat- its natural form, pleasure or business. Our souls are like, chill, you'll be the thing that runs my life. And then we are whirled by it. And then he says, this is why I am carried towards the West when my soul's form bends toward the East. So he is traveling west for some reason when he would be, he, he wishes he was kind of turning around. It must be pleasure, it must be business. The, the purposes of life have him all turned around. Everybody with me so far? Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. There I should see a sun by rising set and by that setting endless day beget. All right. That one's a little strange. I've actually, this one is one of the hardest lines in the entire poem for me to understand. Graham, what do you make of it? Mm. Well, my soul's, uh, so he's riding westward. His soul's bends towards the east. Uh, see a sun by rising set. I mean, he's talking, I mean, it's, it's, it's Good Friday. So the pun on sun, the rising sun, the setting sun. Um, the, the Christ is risen on Good Friday by being lifted up on a cross. Mm-hmm. And by being rising, that sun being risen is setting because he is dying. And then that setting, endless day beget. So he's he's thinking about there's something that seems to be drawing his heart and mind away from Easter, it sounds like. And he's wishing that he could be... Or um, even to Christ himself. Yeah, and he's, and he's wishing that he could either be at a Good Friday service or he's wishing that he could be contemplating the death of Christ, the rising sun, risen on the cross, setting. And then by setting, endless day beget... But, so when Christ dies, mm-hmm. he gives to the world endless daytime, mm-hmm. right? We are all in pretty good spot. Yeah. So, and then, so he's using the, so if I could ride towards the east, I would see the rising sun, rises in the east, sets in the, you know, but, um, but I'm not, I'm riding westward. 
Yeah, so he's he's got his back turned to Christ for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then the next line, but that Christ on this cross did rise and fall, sin had eternally benighted all. So if Christ wouldn't have died, we would be plunged into infinite darkness, mm-hmm. right? So this is his situation. He's being pushed towards the West. He would look back to Christ, but for some reason, pleasure or business, he's being pushed away. Okay, and then he's like, but man, I'm almost glad I'm not looking at it, right? I'm almost glad I do not see that spectacle of too much weight for me. Who sees God's face that his self-life must die? What a death were it then to see God die. He's saying, I mean, there are people in the in the scripture who they see God's face or they touch something holy and they're killed instantly, right? right. Seeing God as he really is is almost a certain death sentence. And he's like, man, you know what? I'm actually kind of glad I'm not looking because if it's just death to see his face. It's intense. If yeah. I saw Jesus die, I'd be obliterated, yeah. right? And then he sort of explores that thought, right? It made his own lieutenant nature shrink. It made his footstool crack and the sun wink. Those are references to things that happened at the crucifixion, earthquake, cracks in the ground, and darkness, right? right? The sun wink. Could I behold those hands which span the poles? So Jesus sort of encaps God encapsulating all and tune all spheres at once. So the thing that runs the actual spheres in our universe, could I see those pierced with nails? Hmm. Could I behold that endless night, which is zenith to us and to Antipodes, humbled below us? Or endless height, which is zenith to us? So could I look at that thing which should be above us all? Could I watch it be lowered down and humbled? Or that blood, which is the seed of all our, all our souls, if not his, make dirt of dust, which is one of my favorite lines in this whole thing. So how do you make dirt of dust? Well, you add moisture. So it is falling on the ground and making dirt of dust. Can I watch that? Or that flesh which was worn by God for his apparel, ragged and torn. It's like, I, I don't think I could look at all those things, all of that greatness humbled. You didn't if, watch the Mel Gibson movie? You didn't watch the... Uh... I did. <laughs> I didn't watch it. I didn't it. cry. Yeah. I, I mean, no, I think I did cry, but I felt like I should because yeah. everybody else was. Oh, there you go. But, yeah. It was sort yeah. of like a group cry. I never watched it because people were like, it's just really violent. I'm like, I don't want to see it's it. It's pretty violent. Yeah. It was, yeah. Okay, he says, if on these things I durst not look, durst I upon his miserable mother cast mine eye who was God's partner here and furnished thus half of that sacrifice, which ransomed us. He's like, I can't look at him. So you might as well look at Mary. Mary so, right. Well, he says, I can't look at Mary yeah, yeah, either. Because she's going to be... Because she's she gave half of this, mm-hmm. right? Though these things, as I ride, be from mine eye. So even though I, I can't see them, I'm not looking at them, they are present to my memory. Mm-hmm. For that looks towards them, and thou lookest towards me. So he's like, I'm, even though I can't look at it directly, I'm sure thinking about it. Yep. And, and now Je- Jesus is looking at him. And Jesus right. is looking at me. <laughs> and he says, O Savior, as thou hangest upon the tree, I turn my back to thee, but to receive corrections till thy mercies bid thee leave. So he's like, you know what? Discipline me, man. Get me, get me right. He says, oh, think me worth thine anger. Punish me, burn off my rusts and my deformity. Restore thine image so much. So bring me back into the image of God, which was conveyed at creation, right? So the Imago Dei. By thy grace, that thou mayest know me and I'll turn my face. And so that last line, I'll turn my face, becomes so much more impactful when you know that what he is doing is turning to view the glory of God crucified, something he was not even sure he could look at. And the only thing that allows him to get there is God's discipline. Right. Right. There's a lot happening in that yeah. poem. Yeah. And you can only really 
crack into it by having the knowledge of the conceit of the spheres and yes. and having some and good sort Friday, of right? and, and knowing Good Friday, knowing that scene, knowing there's Mary, you know, crying her eyes out. And there's got to be a little bit of background in like biblical things. He sure. makes some references there that you wouldn't get in a little bit of background in philosophy with the prime mover argument. Yep. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there that you have to have background in. And if you just gave it a single read you and didn't do any of that, you'd yeah. probably end baffled. Is right. this one that you teach to your students? Yep. Yeah. That how you, uh, to the seniors, then, mm-hmm. if both of you teach it? It's mm-hmm. near the very end of the packet, and I think for good reason. Mm-hmm. I, we sort of ramp up to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a pretty good policy. There are some simpler poems earlier that are easier to climb into. How long do you spend with a poem like this when you're teaching it? This day, I spent two class days on it. Okay. So is that an hour and a half or two hours? Yeah. Three. Three hours. It's two class days. Yeah, three okay. hours. And unlike where I did here, where I just sort of... Fed you guys right. the answers. I, I didn't. Yeah, you, we you, we'd walk through it and you ask the questions and see if they can get it. Yeah. I also didn't want to put you on the spot and I didn't want to just have you tell me what you already know because Graham already knows this and I don't know how much you know of the, this part already. I'll <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Graham already knows this stuff. Sure. This is. I, I honestly had never seen it before this year because we'd never gotten far enough in the packet <laughs> and then I read it and I said, "Holy smokes, this one has to go into memory because it's." quickly a favorite yeah. right it, i feel like i need to read it every easter and it's fantastic i also love that it makes me feel all cool and old by being from 1613 good friday 1613 writing westward that's a pretty good feel where's he going that's all I, that's what i want to know where's why is he not going to church? i don't know it's pleasure of business it's running his soul it's his true. sphere's all out of whack graham go to church buddy it's good, good friday it's <laughs> good advice okay and so now that you've had a taste of poetry and maybe we didn't quite do, quite do the analysis of it mm-hmm, to, to mm-hmm. get there. I just sort of fed it to you. But that is an example of an excellent poem. There's a lot going on there. There's several conceits. There's yep. a lot of there's a rhyme scheme, even though it may not have been super obvious as mm-hmm. I read it. So how do we evaluate poetry? And these questions are are given forward in, again, Perrin's Guide to Literature, Structure, Sound, and Sense. And when you're saying evaluate, you mean say whether it's good or not? Say whether it's good or not. Okay. So can you, I mean, can you even evaluate, evaluate poetry is something that yeah, of course. people say. Often my students be like, this is your opinion. I'll be like, yes, it's a good one. Yeah. Right? If I think if you are arguing from a worldview without values, you can't. It's just whatever you prefer. Whatever poetry you seem to like or you remember is good poetry and whatever. But... That's that isn't the system that's given by. You like Perrin's John Donne? I like Little Baby. Yeah, Little, <laughs> little Baby. Just different. Or it's just different. It's XXX just Tentacion. It's, it's or just, uh, yeah, exactly. It's just all in taste. Yeah. So Perrin's Guide to Literature gives the same general method for evaluation. This is the y-axis and x-axis. Yeah. Like, so can you can you give me that? <laughs> I can't remember the I can't remember the two axes, but it's basically like you are determining the volume of the poem. So what's on the y-axis? What's on the x-axis? It's the purpose of the poem and the artistry with which it is rendered. That's right. So the purpose of the poem, like what it's being written for. So something has a higher purpose or a lower purpose. Lower purpose is like, I don't know, you're talking about a bug or something. And a higher purpose is you're talking about the crucifixion. Okay. And then the artistry <laughs> of which it was rendered. Uh, um, so a like bad Jesus died and I was be, sad would yeah, be exactly. like gotcha. unartfully rendered right. and then something like this would be gratefully artfully rendered and so then you trace the you know, so if one is really high on the y-axis and really long on the x-axis or whatever and then you connect the two points and then the volume if it's greater it is a better poem That's than funny. the cat sat on the mat and in <laughs> in the movie poem. 
Dead Poets Society, yeah. which they, I will say is inspiring. They tear this out. And it is this it, is this is the page that they tear out of the book in that movie, and uh, then they stand their desks and they're all romantic, and then Keating's fired. And the basic notion is that you can't evaluate poetry, right? It's something that comes from the spirit from within. Except you can't evaluate poetry because the purpose it. is to woo women. So it's how oh. well it woos a woman. Okay. Yeah. And and this poem is not wooing any women. Mm-hmm. No, it is not. It is not going to woo a lady. And no, John Donne woos some ladies. And if I know, and if not I've learned poem. anything from Mr. Darcy, it's that women are not wooed by poetry. If mm. if it is already strong, a good sonnet is, you know, it, it encourages what was strong already, but if she doesn't like you, it'll <laughs> starve right. it away completely. Yeah. That's right. Right? So sending a poem to a woman is a bad gambit because either it's encouraging what was already there or it's just going to make her totally freak out and not be all for right. you. So any young men, if you're listening, poetry for women, generally a bad idea. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. So here's their evaluation system. It's three things. And I, and I quote, In judging a poem, as in judging any work of art, we need to ask three basic questions. Number one, what is its central purpose? Number two, how fully has this purpose been accomplished? And number three, how important is the purpose? I feel like those three questions can be easily put into that volume thing, right? Which is, what is the purpose of the poem and how artfully is it rendered, right? How fully is it accomplished? And they go on to kind of describe understanding these questions and the how fully is this purpose accomplished that involves the artistry right are there any excess words is it the right word did they use the right form did they use the right irony and imagery and all of that stuff and then they actually list three downfalls of poetry that kind of are alarms that it's bad so number one sentimentality which is an indulgence in emotion for its own sake or expression of more emotion than the occasion warrants and i will i will read a little bit more of this one because it's funny Sentimentalists are gushy, stirred to tears by trivial or inappropriate causes. They weep at all weddings and funerals. They are made ecstatic by manifestations of young love. They clip locks of hair, (laughs) gild baby shoes, and talk baby talk. Mm. Sentimental literature is tear-jerking literature. It aims primarily at stimulating the emotions directly rather than at communicating experience truly and freshly. It depends on trite and well-tried formulas for exciting emotion. It revels in old oaken buckets, rocking chairs, mother love, and the pitter-patter of little, little feet. It oversimplifies. It is unfaithful to the full complexity of human experience. Why you gotta, why you gotta rag on Gilmore Girls? That's a great <laughs> show. Sure. Okay, the next one is rhetorical poetry. It uses language more glittering and high-flown than the substance warrants. So, too much language. For example the play within a play in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Whereat with blade, with bloody blameful blade, he bravely broached his boiling bloody breast. (laughs) It's perfect. It's too much. It's perfect. And lastly is didactic poetry, which is poetry that has primary purpose to teach or preach. Mm. And it's true that great poetry teaches in subtle ways, but it's without being expressly didactic. Right. Uh, And... Much expressly didactic poetry ranks high in poetic excellence, but when the didactic purpose supersedes the poetic purpose, that's when it becomes a problem. So, ways to tell. It is recognizable often by its lack of any specific situation, the flatness of diction, poverty of imagery and language, its emphasis on moral principles or platitudes, and its lack of poetic freshness. For example, early to bed and early to rise makes a man (laughs) healthy, wealthy, and wise. Thank you. All right, so those are... Shots fired. 
Yeah, three ways to evaluate, or the two questions to evaluate poetry. Or many. What's the purpose and how artfully is it rendered, right? Which I actually think is a good way to think about things. That's fine. And then three downfalls. So if we are evaluating John Donne's poem, right, the, the second one, how artfully is it rendered, I'd... I would say it's incredible. It's mm-hmm. it's a fantastic poem, and the purpose He's is to right. turn one's heart towards the divine, which yep. is again a fantastic purpose. I I would rank that high among mm-hmm. greatness of poetry. Uh, what is it? Death, thou art not great, or whatever it was, is I think lesser. Mm. I would say that the purpose is not as high, and the artistry with which it's rendered isn't quite as good as his writing western poem. Yep. So I would rank it a little bit lower. I would rank both of those higher than the following poem. Is it one of your old poems? Yeah, it's it's I, I one that so re, we wrote for... Oh, the Instagram account? Yeah, yes. for a fake poetry Instagram account we put together. And here is the poem. This is one that I wrote so that I don't have to criticize anybody else. It's, it's intentionally bad. Here it goes. My heart is like a bird that cannot sing, mm. but it is still colorful mm. and will sing when it is ready. Mm. <laughs> Okay, what makes this a bad poem? Nothing, can't, it's perfect. It can't sing. Yeah. But it's going to sing bad. when it's ready, but you're, you don't have the consistency of the imagery. So it's not even internally consistent, because yeah. I said the bird can't sing, but mm-hmm. it will sing when it's ready. So it's not that it can't sing, it won't, won't sing. sing. So I use the wrong word there. It's also pretty tried and trite imagery. What would you say about the purpose of the poem? Is it a great purpose? It's like, I'll talk when I want to? I don't know. It's uh, It's... So first, the purpose is kind of unclear. Yeah. What'd you say? Or is you couching yourself in your own, like, grouchiness? Morose timidity, kind of? Yeah. It's overly sentimental, I would say. Mm -hmm, Right? It's also just bad. It's a bad poem. Right? That's not good. That is qualitatively worse than the poem (laughs) we read. Okay. Sure. What was my poem that I wrote that got rejected for being on your bad poetry? It was too clever. You write poetry that's too clever. I do still love the one that you sent us that is still one of my favorites. It's it's this one. When I saw the email said attachment, I thought it referred to us. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I love that one. Is that too clever? Was that posted? That was the one. one, That one was posted. He had other ones that were, they had too much form. They had too much good imagery. He's just naturally a good poet. And so So, it doesn't work. uh, Hannenberg and uh, others, I don't want to out anybody, have a fake Instagram poetry account where they write fake bad poems and just post them yes. this was this intentionally is serious like get anybody we we did it as a project in class because my students I, I showed them some bad instagram poetry and they wanted to write some of their own volition and then we had a bunch of great ones and they're like we should start an account so we did i wasn't right yeah we're not making fun of it yeah. but now there is a instagram account that purports to be real but is actually fake with fake with real with poetry that's bad but it's pretending to be good and have we have we looped anybody? Are there any followers who think it's it's like this is amazing? Yes, we have many actual <laughs> so poetry accounts linked, and I feel honestly I feel really guilty about you it. No. no, this is this is for, uh, for example another poem on this is sometimes I cannot tell if it's raining or I'm crying, then I reach out my hand, and nothing is there. <laughs> oh, that's great! I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, so good. This is perfect. So that's and with all lowercase letters, right? Okay. Oh, naturally. What do you guys think about that system for evaluating poetry? Is it is it a good system? I'm is it a bad system? Yep. Does it kind of murder poetry for you? It, no. it doesn't murder poetry. It does mean that like um if you are writing an occasion, so like if Thomas is gonna write a poem for Sarah's birthday, his wife's right. birthday, are we and um are we going to say that that it like 
clearly, and this I think Thomas would agree, that's not the same occasion as Good Friday, the you. death of God. Yeah, sure. Um, but uh, it's still, you know, does that mean that that poem is never going to be greater than a poem that contemplates Good Friday? Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm, probably. I'm and is that, is that cool? I'm fine saying yes. Uh, kind of in the same vein, you mentioned some poets you like, um, Billy Collins and mm -hmm. Jack, what was his name? Uh, anyway. Um, Jack Gilbert. Gilbert. Well, the, kind of the conceit of their poetry is that they're smaller events. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. you know, they'll have like poems about their kitchen table or um, just like small moments in the same vein. Would you say that that is not that it's worse or better? It's that it's lesser. What, like what, what compare? How would you compare mm -hmm. what John Donne is doing to what Jack Gilbert is doing? The, I mean, the question is one of greatness, right? It's less great. I would say, yeah, it's less mm -hmm. great. It's not bad. And I, I love Jack Gilbert's poetry and I love Billy Collins. Mm -hmm. uh, but it in could fact, be, I can recommend several. Mm -hmm. But it could be looking at greatness from another angle. So one Billy Collins poem is he's walking around a mall and he's hearing a bunch of teenage mm -hmm. girls continuously saying, oh, my God, mm -hmm. to everything. Oh, my God. And he's like... <laughs> They are he he and he muses that they are like continuously offering up these prayers <laughs> to God in the mundane, like oh my God, look at your shoes and be like he's praising God for their shoes, you know, <laughs> yeah. and um, and so that's like witty. The occasion is still God in the commonplace. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's and it's witty. So. There's there's another called the lanyard where he makes one of those strange woven square lanyards for his mom at camp and presents it to her as this wonderful thing mm -hmm. that he's made and in his young boyish mind believes that it has made them even and essentially the poem is a a praise of his mother's love and her right. devotion and sacrifice for him and so the purpose is actually greater than than you would originally have thought mm -hmm. and it is rendered incredibly well it's, yeah, right. he's got a fantastic dry sense of humor in fact i recommend if you are listening to this you go and watch some Billy Collins, him presenting his own poems. The lanyard is great. The one where he talks about the minds of dogs is hilarious. There's one dog that hates you and is feeling the lack of dignity of being taken on walks and pooped in certain places. And it's really funny. And then the ode to my favorite 17 year old girl is pretty it's high school delightful. girl is yeah. so funny. Um, I think it's helpful to think about sentimentality because usually with teenagers in poetry, we, uh, students think that if you are not sentimental, then you need to be completely devoid of any relationship with feeling. Or if you are completely devoid of relationship with feeling, the opposite of that is being sentimental. But there's a right relationship with feeling that right. is, is is like the golden mean between those two. Sentimental means like you feel the wrong things at the wrong times. and Or you feel other, too much. Or you feel right. too much. Another one is you don't feel anything at all. And both of those are wrong. And so there's something good about good poetry that drives away sentimentality. And like, if someone read this poem, it was like, I like it that he loves Jesus. It'd be like, okay, like that's sure, too simple right. for this yes. poem. Yeah. Um, um, There's a lot going on there yeah. about mm -hmm. what drives us and what kind of decisions you're making and humility before God. Yeah, all, exactly. all of those things are important. Mm -hmm. And I think, and this is actually a perfect lead into part number four. Is it okay if I go a little bit long? I think, mm -hmm. I think we're going to be done in like seven minutes. You can do whatever you want to, man. Okay. This is a great lead into part four, which is the overall value of poetry. Why why it is valuable and where I have landed in my... Did we skip part three? No, part three was how to evaluate poetry. Was how to evaluate. Thank you. Yep. Part one was analysis. Part two was John, John Donne. Dunn. Part three was how to evaluate. Yep, and sorry. part four is the overall value of poetry. Okay. What it's for. 
And so is there value in these Billy Collins poems that are just honestly about what he wrote one about finding out that he's older than Cheerios. He thought, oh my goodness, Cheerios was invented after I was born. I am literally older than Cheerios. That is awful. That's a great poem. It's fantastic. I love it. And so can we value those on sort of the same level? What, What is the value of these? And I am right in thinking that they generally do not help make statesmen. Poems are usually not for that. And there's there's a couple of lines in a poem that help me to understand what the value of poetry is, even in response to prose, to books and novels and that sort of thing. This is from W.H. Auden's In Memory of W.B. Yeats. So again, a poem that's in our senior English packet. And has my favorite line of all of, all of poetry in it. Let's see if I hit it. So this is in part two. Nope. <laughs> for, for poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its saying where executives would never want to tamper. It flows south from ranches of isolation and the busy griefs, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. And that's partially what it is, is a mouth for human experience. And so is there the experience of finding out your old Cheerios? Yep. Is there experience of having high school girls say, oh my gosh, like all the way through the, the mall? Yeah, there's that too. The experience of being annoyed at your high school daughter, being annoyed at certain things or accidentally presenting a lanyard to your mom and thinking it makes you even. Yeah, these things are all human experiences and capturing them in a fresh and not sentimental way is good. It's a good thing. And here's the last five quatrains as sort of an ending to my episode about what poetry is for. Yeah, this will hit it. It's in here? Mm -hmm. Perfect. In the nightmare of the dark... All the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. Intellectual disgrace stares in every human face, and the seas of pity lie, locked and frozen in each eye. Follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, Make a vine of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. So there you go. When things aren't square, the poet follows that curse all the way to the bottom and can teach us to praise. I think there may be a future episode where we talk about the... um the poet who sees himself as a social role for society, as somebody who is trying to put words to the world he lives in so that in the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. Yep. Um, there's, there's a number of poets that I've read that sort of have that, it's almost chutzpah, like have that almost like um, that sort of um, um, swagger about them that says like, I'm taking up this almost like prophetic mantle to speak to my time in poetry um, mm-hmm. to either bring healing and also to bring sort of like a, a mirror to, to everything that's going on. To teach people yeah. in hardship how the to The sentinel. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Which ones cool. were your favorite lines? Uh, in the farming of a verse, make a vine of the curse. That's, I, think, I think of that as like um, almost my, like the, the, the phrase, that's the phrase I probably think about daily when we're doing English class. It's the poet's job. It's the poet's job. It's the teacher's job. You're farming the verse to grow vines, Good. grow fruit. And I love that image. And 
these poems, these ones that I've read today are poems that stick with me. I mean, except for the ones that I wrote that are on Instagram. They're <laughs> nightmares of literature. Let us stick with you. Ugh. In a different way. Right? In, a, in a totally different yeah. way. So I don't know. Where do I end in poetry? I think it's valuable as something where executives would never want to tamper, as something that gives mouth to human experience in a way that something else can't, that it's short, right? Could I write those things in prose? Yes, but it'd be a couple of short paragraphs and it probably wouldn't land the same. There are concepts that are to be given in book and there are concepts to be given in poem. And I think that is the value of poetry. It's good. If our words have been too rough... You have been listening to classical stuff. It hurts. If more of us you would like to find, you can Google us online. <laughs> Thank you. No, that, that last one didn't rhyme. Sorry. Anyway. If you'd like to hear us all go on, sponsor us on <laughs> Patreon. Uh, this has been Classical <laughs> Stuff You Should Know with AJ, Thomas, and Graham. You can find us on all the socials uh, except Instagram. Oh, no, you can find us on Instagram, but it's secret and hidden. You'll have to fi- you may not even know you found us. Or no, it's not even us. It's, it's AJ and others. Um, and we're on Patreon. We're on Twitter. You can email us at the guys at Classical Stuff. And we thank you for listening and go read a poem. Yeah, do it. Ciao. Yep. Bye. bye.